The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. The human mind, body, emotions, and spirit are more powerful than anyone can imagine, and we will learn to utilize each of them to the maximum and learn to make decisions about what we want and how we want to feel. What a concept, and one we will explore today on The Self-Improvement Show with your host, Dr. Irene Conlon. On our program, we'll address who you are, why you're here on this planet, how to go within, how to come to know what you believe, and why. Now, here's your host, Dr. Irene Conlon. Welcome to The Self-Improvement Show. This is Irene Conlon. We're broadcasting from Fountain Hills, Arizona, and as always, I'm so delighted to have you with us today. Go to the self-improvement blog. I know you're going to want to read about our guest, see his picture uh, on the on the announcement of the show. There are two videos that you'd probably benefit greatly from. And while you're there, sign up for seven ha- hacks to happy. Seven hacks to happy. Over in the right sidebar, you'll find some things that you can do to make yourself even happier. And I'd love to have you receive the newsletter as well. I've heard from more than one person lately uh, who talks at length about how crazy things are getting. And they indicate they just don't know the right ways to cope with some of it. You only have to watch a few minutes of the news to know that that's true. You know, we, we hear about shootings, rape, child abuse other negative stories that dominate the headlines, and we hear about them every single day, every news broadcast. And another thing I've noticed is that we hear references to real people as if there's someone different, you know, like a rare breed located somewhere, but I don't quite know where. And it makes me wonder, what are the others? You know, are the rest of us fake people? You know, what's this about real people? And further than that, there are some some new dating sites springing up that are for people who just want to experience sex with no strings attached and no emotional involvement. And with being loved and feeling that you belong being such powerful and essential needs, you have to wonder what's happening in our culture, if not globally. There are many more examples of the chaos that is evolving all around us. So the real question is, what about you? Are you just existing, getting your getting mired down in the chaos, or are you flourishing? And what does it mean to flourish anyway? We're going to talk about that today, and we're going to talk about love in a chaotic world. And we have Dr. Jeffrey Rubin here as our flourishing expert. Some of you may remember him. He's been on with us before, and it's always been just a wonderful, juicy conversation Dr. Jeffrey Rubin is a graduate of Princeton University, Columbia University, and Union Institute. He received psychoanalytic training at Lenox Hill Hospital in New York City and the Westchester Institute for Training in Psychoanalysis and Psychotherapy. 
He's the creator of meditative psychotherapy. His work has been featured in the New York Times Magazine, and he has taught at the United Nations, the Esalen Institute, and the Open Center. He has published four books, numerous articles, and has taught at various universities, psychoanalytic institutes, and meditation and yoga centers. He's widely regarded as one of the leading authorities on the integration of meditation and psychotherapy, and I think that's probably got to be a wonderful marriage. He has just published a new edition of The Art of Flourishing, now with a new subtitle, A Guide to Mindfulness, Self-Care, and Love in a Chaotic World. And I'm excited to introduce and welcome Dr. Jeffrey Rubin to the Self-Improvement Show. Jeffrey, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Irene. Oh, I'm always delighted to have you on this show because you have such wonderful things to teach us. As always, I'm going to ask you to tell us about yourself. Who is Jeffrey Rubin? Well, when I was a teenager, I had a very deep spiritual experience playing basketball. It was the last five seconds of the game, and our team was down by one point, and my teammates were crestfallen. And a strange calm descended upon me, and I put my hand on the shoulder of my coach, which I didn't normally do. He was also my English teacher. And I told him to tell the players to be calm and to get me the ball. So he set up a play where, in the last five seconds, my teammate rolled the ball into me, and I turned and dribbled up court. And when I did, the uh, basketball surroundings became like a cathedral, like a monastery. It became very, very still. And I no longer heard the pounding of the ball. I no longer heard the people screaming. I no longer worried about... Uh, missing the shot. I no longer felt excited about making the shot. I entered this sort of calm, quiet, clear zone. And I released the shot just as the buzzer sounded, and we were lucky enough to win. And I was a competitive teenage male athlete. But afterwards, in the locker room, I didn't care about the win. I was mesmerized by what had happened. It felt like, Irene, like a doorway had opened into another way of being. And that began a quest. When I went to college, when I went to Princeton, I studied English literature, and I read widely in the humanities, history, philosophy, art history, sociology. And I think I was trying to answer the question, what happened those last five seconds of the game? And is there another way to live? Is there another way to be? And that then led me to a Buddhist meditation retreat in in my mid-20s, and that was a wonderful experience with the teachers, Joseph Goldstein and Jack Kornfield and uh, Insight Meditation Society in in Barry, Massachusetts. And then at the same time, I, I was in graduate school and I was training to be a therapist, and I was in my own therapy and then eventually practicing therapy and being supervised by other therapists. And so my life quest was how to bring together the, the best of the East and the best of the West, because the feeling I had was that each, when they were brought together, each, they were richer than each alone. So the complementarity of them was greater than pursuing either one alone. And at that time, this is the late 70s, 70s, early 80s, really hardly anyone was doing that. People were either studying Buddhism or other spiritual paths, yoga, Hinduism, Taoism, martial arts, or they were studying therapy. But I just had this intuition that they both spoke to the heart, they both made people more compassionate, uh, wiser, more loving, and I just studied both. And 
A very wise yoga teacher of mine, Joel Kramer, who's on the West Coast, said to me, don't force the synthesis before it organically emerges. And it was wonderful advice. And so for years, I just kept studying both as deeply as I could, the ethics in Buddhism, meditation practices, yoga, psychotherapy, psychoanalysis. And then at some point, uh, they began to gel, and I began to see how they might come together. I began to see how they might be able to be integrated in a way that was down-to-earth and accessible and that could help, uh, as you were saying, real people live, live real, real authentic lives. So that's been a huge life uh, passion, is, is integrating the best of East and the best of the West. That's a long answer to who are you, Jeff? <laughs> so tell us then, what is meditative psychotherapy and who can benefit from it? Meditative psychotherapy is the way I now describe these, this integration. And it has three elements. Um, the first element is listening in a different sort of way, which I think both meditation and therapy uh, provide half the picture of. So what meditation is wonderful at is calming and stilling and quieting the mind. Jack Kornfield talks about uh, a laser, that the, when the mind becomes like a laser, it can cut through more deeply and say things more accurately. Western therapy brings a kind of wider anger, angle lens, uh, looking at dreams, looking at what Freud called slips of the tongue, in, I have an e-book um, called Meditative Psychotherapy where I describe some of this and practicing meditative therapy, two different e-books. And in one of them I have a case of a woman who says to her Tibetan teacher, she's a student of Tibetan Buddhism, and she says, I don't want to go to Tibet. I mean, I want to go to Tibet. Now, the Tibetan teacher didn't get curious about this because he thought it was just kind of a perceptual glitch. She you know, that she meant to say, I want to go, and she said she didn't want to go. A therapist would wonder if that's what Freud called a slip of the tongue, where we say more than we know. So when she said it to me in, in therapy, I don't want to go to Tibet, I mean, I want to go to Tibet, I didn't say anything. I paused for a second, and then she said, I guess that's a slip of the tongue. And then I didn't say uh-huh. anything. And then I, then I said, well, what comes to mind about your slip of the tongue? And she said... I guess I really do want to study, but I guess I also don't. I'm ambivalent. And so you see, therapy can, Western therapy, this is something that's often not talked about because there's all this uh, idealization of the East, which I think is wonderful, but what gets lost is the value of the West. And I think we really need, see, each arose in different cultural contexts. Buddhism, for example, arose in 5th century B.C. India, and it was a very different time than now. And it had a different set of uh, challenges, questions, and concerns. And you can't answer a question from another age necessarily from a prior age. For example, uh, I have clients all the time, and they you know, have new dilemmas because of the Internet. Is, um, is, an inter- is an Internet relationship betrayal of my spouse? You know, there are all sorts of new things come up, and it, you, the, all the answers don't necessarily reside in the past. And so what I began to see was each tradition, Western psychotherapy broadly defined, and the Eastern meditative and contemplative traditions, each offered a a germ of truth about how to listen. So listening is the first component. It all begins with listening. The second component, and this is a difference between psychotherapy and meditative traditions, meditative traditions are not interested in meaning, and Western therapy is interested in meaning. 
So uh, when we listen, meanings arise. For example, someone comes to the session, a psychotherapy session, and they quickly hand me a check before the session begins. What does that mean? Well, it could mean a range of things. It could mean their last therapist yelled at them when they paid at the end of the session. It could mean they're frightened that they'll forget about paying and then they'll be racked with guilt. It could be they're mad at me and they want to give me a gift and please me, or even something that listeners are, are thinking about that we're not even thinking about now. It could have multiple meanings. Meditation isn't focused on that. It's focused on being with whatever is happening in a spirit of self-friendship, being with the sensation in the body, being with the thought, being with the feeling. Those two, those two practices are different, being with and trying to figure out the meaning. What I've seen over the years is focusing on meaning is very, very helpful. For example, you, it's hard to work out trauma unless you understand what the meaning is. I was lecturing this weekend, Diane, at a, a Buddhist center in New York called the Interdependence Project. I was lecturing on a new book I'm working on, Sources of Hope in a Runaway World. And we talked about this you know, question of meaning, and we were talking about how uh, one of the, one of the uh, participants said, What's this, what do you think of this Buddhist idea of it's just a thought or uh, it's just your story or let go of your story? I don't know if you've heard people say this, Diane, Irene, but it's... Uh, I, it's I have. Yeah, you have, okay. Yeah. And so I think it's important to know that we're more than our story and we're more than our thought, but we have to pay attention to them at least some of the time because, for example, there's no way you can work out trauma unless you go into what did happen and what is the story and what is the image that someone has of themselves. And so here's, that's where meaning comes in. There, there's more than just the meaning, but we need to focus on meaning. So that's the second aspect of meditative therapy. We listen in this calm, quiet, receptive way. And then we uh, uncover or decode the meaning that arises. And then the third is we use the therapeutic relationship as an arena in which we can both learn about our old constricted habits and ways of being, the old ways we don't take care of ourselves well, the old ways we relate to other people that don't quite work, and we can practice new ways of being. We can practice being freer. Uh, more fulfilled, more authentic, more passionate. So we listen in a special, quiet, receptive way. We uncover the meaning of what arises and when, we, the, when we listen in that way, and then we use the relationship to, to practice and learn new ways of being. Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense, and I would think that your clients or patients, whatever, however you turn them, really respond to it in a positive way. Well, they feel like it's, it's uh, accessible and it's down to earth and it has a depth to it. One of the problems, uh, I, something I talk about in the new preface to the paperback edition of Art of Flourishing, where I try to contextualize the, where the world has been since the time of writing the hardback version of the Art of Flourishing. And one of the things is that there's a mindfulness revolution and another is that there's a happiness re- revolution. But the interesting thing is if you step back a little bit and you're really objective about it, we're an immensely distracted society and we're an immensely unhappy society. And this predates the, uh, the 2016 presidential election. This was going on before then. And you, so you have to, I think we have to look at mindfulness 
and happiness as the happiness movement and the mindfulness movement in a way as attempts to respond to these cultural problems and pressures. This unhappiness, this disenchantment, this um, being foggy, not being, not being present. But the problem with the happiness movement, as even the founder of it, Martin Seligman, admits in his book, in one of his books, it's a very inexact and, and problematic way of defining anything, exactly what it means. And also, I wrote a piece online, um, The Unhappy Truth About Positive Psychology, or something like that. And um, it's very fickle. It's about me feeling good now. To be really frank with you, I don't focus on that one second in a year. I just don't. I think it's, 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 we have to look at it in the opposite way. If we live a fulfilling life, a natural byproduct is that we'll be happy. If we try to be happy, I think we're going to be more miserable. I don't want to mention names, but there's a best-selling writer on happiness, and she says in her book, <laughs> I was unhappy because I was not happy enough. You see, this to me is a, um, it's a strange self-created problem um, because worrying about happy is really worrying about me feeling good now. And I think the world needs something different. Let, let me be really clear. I value happiness as much as the next person, and I don't like it when I'm not happy. But the attempt to try to be happy, I think, ends up making people unhappy. And the attempt to try to live a good life where we, we live fully, we flourish, we respect other people, we try to give back to the world, we try to take care of ourselves. In other words, what I call self-care and intimacy in the art Exactly. Of On that note, Jeffrey, we need to go to break. When we come back, we're going to talk more about your new edition of The Art of Flourishing. So stay tuned. We'll be back with more. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Where can you listen to some of the world's top life coaches ready to dish out success tips and entrepreneurial guidance? The Voice America Empowerment Channel will do just that. Whether it's personal growth, building a better business, or inspirational life stories, make it a daily habit to tune into our programs. From weight loss and personal branding to law of attraction and increased happiness, you'll find it every day at VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. Are you looking for life's answers? How about the meaning of true self? Can you really be a better person overnight? Well, good luck with that. Now, if you want to know more about this insane world and life we lead, tune in to Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. You'll learn about how the brain operates under different psychological conditions, some common sense. Heck, you might just actually learn something. Listen Fridays at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Empowerment. When you learn to see things from a spiritual perspective, it changes the way you see virtually everything in your life. Listen for Dr. Paula Joyce and her program, Uplift Your Life, Nourishment of the Spirit. Our program will help you get rid of the negative aspects of your life and invite love, joy, and prosperity into your life. Turn that negative feeling into a positive one. 
Tune in to Uplift Your Life, Nourishment of the Spirit, every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. You are tuned in to The Self-Improvement Show with your host, Dr. Irene Conlon. Got a question for Irene or her guests? Call into our live show at 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Connect with Irene via email. Our address is the theselfimprovementblog at gmail.com. Now, let's get back to The Self-Improvement Show. Here again is Dr. Irene Conlon. Welcome back to The Self-Improvement Show. My guest today is Dr. Jeffrey Rubin. He's written a book, The Art of Flourishing, and we're going to be talking about that. For those of you who were with us in the very beginning, you may have heard some sirens in the background. Um, you need to know that Dr. Rubin is in New York, and he's right across the street from one of the Trump buildings, and they are picketing there. So whether or not the sirens are connected with that, we don't know. But I just wanted to give you a little heads up not to worry about it. Nobody's coming to get any of us, and none of us are in need of an emergency uh, an emergency response. <laughs> but it's kind of an interesting side in today's show, and I thought you'd like to know about it. Jeffrey, you've you've written a, a new edition, or you've you've added some things. You've changed the art of flourishing, which I think is one of the best books on the scene for these times. What have you done to change it, number one? What's different about this book? I certainly know the the, the focus has changed to mindfulness a little bit. Uh, and how do people find it? Uh, there's a new preface in the book, and as I alluded to earlier, I tried to think real hard about where we were as a culture, as a people, when I wrote the book, and where we are now, and I tried to present a kind of overview, a kind of roadmap of certain cultural changes, which I think makes flourishing even more important. There may be people out in the audience who are interested in flourishing, but a little bit dubious. How can we speak about flourishing when there's so much suffering? How can we speak about flourishing when there's so much tension and conflict in the world? I would argue it's more, it's, it's not narcissistic, it's not a luxury, it's more necessary than ever. And it's more necessary because to meet the challenges in the world, to be able to change with the world and flow with the world and give the world the best of us, we need to be um, doing as well as we can. We need to be living well. We need to be flourishing. We need to be taking care of ourselves. We need to be respecting ourselves. We need to be trying to handle our emotions wisely. Uh, if we believe in spirituality, we need to bring spirituality down to earth and into our lives. We need to be uh, authentically ourselves. We need to try to find our own vision of what, how, what's important to us and express our passions, our healthy passions. And that puts us in the best condition to both be a good friend, to work with integrity, and, and, and to love, to love other people and to love the world. And it's from that basis, Irene, that I think we have the strongest perspective to then handle what goes on in the world. You say that happiness and flourishing are not the same, and I think I just heard you describe flourishing, which is much, much broader 
than the idea of happiness. We were talking about happiness before the break. Is there anything else that you need to add into this um, subject of flourishing that's, you know, a, a critical piece? I know you've listed, well, you've listed 12 qualities that help everyone flourish. There are two of them that I really want to touch on, and maybe this is a good place to do that. And if we leave anything out, we can come back to it. You you talk about practicing genuine self-care so we know what our authentic needs are, and that brings up all kinds of questions. What is genuine self-care, and how do we know what our authentic needs are? I mean, those are two huge questions. So let's let's start to address them. So... By genuine self-care, what, what ordinarily passes for self-care, we'll call it ungenuine self-care, is, or inauthentic self-care, is what I think of as cotton candy self-care. If you remember cotton candy, those in the oh, northern, yeah. it looks good, it tastes It rots good. your teeth. <laughs> and then three seconds later, you're hungry for more as well as yeah. it rots your teeth. So a lot of what passes for self-care is like that. It's cotton candy. It's, I also call it empty carbs of the mind and the spirit. It doesn't really feed us, and in fact, it makes us hungry for more. So I'm not trying to put this down, but we might watch, uh, you know, multiple law and orders in a row, or we, or we might, might watch TV all night because one more healthy thing feels like, more healthy activity feels like it's another thing on the to-do list, and we're already exhausted and depleted. And so well, what we often think of as self-care is just depriving us more. So by genuine self-care, I mean that which actually nourishes your spirit, actually uh, nurtures you. You might find, for example, that the phone rings and you tighten because you want to watch Law & Order, you want to, quote, chill out that evening, and a friend is in need, and you get drawn in. And then 20 minutes later or 40 minutes later, you get off the phone, and you notice, if you're really honest, that you're vitalized. So you wanted to isolate. You wanted to watch TV, but the connecting with the friend and the being able to be helpful, it didn't change what you're going through at work or even the fact that you're trying to get work, but it made you feel connected to someone you love. It made you feel that there's a place for you in the universe. It made you feel that you're valuable. So often we make bad decisions about what will nourish us. And so genuine self-care is about trying to make uh, better decisions about that. And the way I can quickly summarize it, Irene, is that we need to figure out what helps us thrive. I'm just mm-hmm. going to list some things, but what, one of the things I liked about the vision of flourishing in The Art of Flourishing is it's general and specific but the general part leaves room for people to find what's important to them. So what works for me or for Irene might not work for you in the audience, or it might work, and vice versa. So here are some general things. I think we need to try to create a friendship between our mind and our body. We need to, have, uh, we need to listen to our body, not just let our mind rule. We need to sense when we get up in the morning is going to the gym, uh, which our mind might want to do, is that going to deplete us? Or do we, do we need to stretch more? Or do we need to walk and get fresh air? 
to really ask what it is that we need and really give it to ourselves. So uh, harmony between mind and body is one possibility. Another is friendship, connection with people that see us for who we are, that respect us, that, that know us. Another is um, good nutrition and sleep. And time for quietude, time to meditate, time to walk in nature, uh, this kind of a thing. So the main thing with the, with the authentic, genuine self-care is figuring out what helps you thrive. Maybe listening to music is another one. Gardening or cooking are other ones. So to find out what helps you thrive and to build that into your life, not fit it into your life. Many, many years ago, I was studying Tai Chi, and I was a total beginner. I, have, I talk about this story in the book. And I was such a beginner that I could do the form over and over and over, and it would still only take 10 or 12 minutes. And sometimes I would do it, and sometimes I wouldn't do it. And I had a weekly basketball game I was in with my best friend, and I would leave work at about 11 or 11.30 and come back at, you know, maybe 1.00. And it was a commitment. So this was uh, two days a week I would do this, and then on Saturdays. And the basketball always happened, and the Tai Chi sometimes happened. And I began to study, why can't I do 10 or 12 minutes every day, and why do I do this basketball regularly? And the difference was the basketball was built in, the Tai Chi was fitted in. And I learned a very valuable lesson. Mm. If, if Those in the audience, you could do an experiment. You could take a pad. You can make a line in the middle of the page. On the left-hand side, you could write what you're doing that you feel good about in your life. You stay connected to friends. You have a healthy diet. You listen to music regularly. You play with your grandkids, whatever it is that's important that you're doing. Now, on the right-hand side of the column, write what you would like to be doing that you're not doing. So on the left-hand side, it's what you're doing in your life that you feel good about. On the right-hand side, it's what you're not doing. And what you will notice is on the right-hand side, none of the things are built into your life, the things you're not doing. The reason you're not doing them is they're not built in. And everything on the left-hand side is built in. You know you see your grandkids every Saturday morning. You know you go to, to, to church or um, a Buddhist center or a yoga class weekly, it's all built in. So the trick is to make what's not built in, built in. By built in, I mean it's unquestioned. You're brushing your teeth in the morning, built in. Built in, it's unquestioned. So that way, when life intrudes, you work around that instead of your, the good activities drop away because you're fitting them in. So if you say, well, at some point today, Inspired by, uh, by listening to Irene and Jeffrey, uh, today I'm going to meditate. Too general. Are you going to meditate before dinner? Are you going to meditate after you finish work? Build it in. Know when you're going to do it. Build it in. Uh, make it a priority. And that's crucial to genuine self-care. And one of the things I say in the book, Irene, is that self-care is the foundation of intimacy and <laughs> that intimacy, was my next question. <laughs> Let's talk about And intimacy that. is the final stage and the fruition of self-care. So if we do this, if we figure out what helps us thrive, imperfectly, we're, we're human, so imperfectly, but if we do our best, figure out what helps us thrive, build that into our lives, then it's a wonderful springboard to then be more open to others, to not be resentful, to not be a martyr, to not feel bitter because we're deprived, 
it's the best position from which then to connect with others, whether connection is service to society, connecting with friends, a love relationship, what it, relatives, friendships, whatever it is. So that's how the two go together. How do you know your authentic needs? I think it takes time. I think it, frankly, takes some work. You have to ask yourself. And you see, the problem, and this may be a problem for some out there, and I, I certainly grappled with this. If you've been raised in a home where you were very much the caretaker or you were very accommodating to the needs of other people, what can happen is that you don't even ask the question, what are my authentic needs? So actually, the first step in figuring out your authentic needs is making it a priority, thinking that you count enough that that's important. And for some people, it, it used to be a lot of women. I've found recently it's maybe increasing, increasing numbers of men. We don't even stop and ask the question, what is it that helps me thrive? What nourishes my soul? What's important? So frankly, quiet is, is useful for this. Just even stopping for a few minutes a day. I don't, I don't drink coffee. When I wake up in the morning, I do yoga. And the yoga is my coffee. It wakes me up and it puts me in touch with, with my body. Mm-hmm. And then what I do is I stop at the end of yoga when I've been centered, even if you do a, a short routine. And then I sit and I ask myself, what do I need to do for others today? And what do I need to do for myself? And I might write it on an index card. Some of you might write it on your, you know, in the notes section on your phone. But you just know what is it that's important to you. In the yoga tradition, they call this dharma which is different than Buddhist dharma. It means your responsibilities. So I think about what are my responsibilities to myself and what are my responsibilities to others, and I use that as a um, sort of a reminder during the day. And, you know, yeah, there's a, it, it might there's be a whole generation to... of us that were taught to put ourselves last. Everybody else yes. comes first, and so you really have to change a mindset to be able to do that. Exactly. When I first did this, I call it Dharma meditation, and I talk about it. If you look up Dharma meditation in the book, you'll, you'll see it in the index. When I first did it, I did it in terms of what do I need to do for others, and one day I, I, I laughed about it, and I felt sad, and I laughed, like, here it is. You know, everyone else, but I'm, I'm last. So you don't want to be, you know, myopically putting yourself first, which many people in the culture do right now, and you also don't want to be automatically putting yourself last. You want to find a place for both. It's one of the things I'm trying to talk about in the book. How can we nurture ourselves and be more connected with others? I think of it as an interdependent self. So we're connected to others, but yet we're authentically ourselves. And that's an, a lovely dis, a distinction. It's time for us to go to break. And when we come back, I want to talk about intimacy and how do we find love, real love, in this chaos that we're in these days. Uh, and, and I really want to explore what intimacy is because some people seem to limit it to sex only. So this is Irene Conlon with my guest Jeffrey Rubin. We'll be right back with more, so don't go away. Follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. 
How are you doing in your life? Do you control your life or does it control you? In our hectic, overconnected world, do you spend too much time feeling tired and wired? Tune in to Master Your Life with hosts Leah Mattinson and Dr. Howard Rankin for inspiration, insight, and intelligence on how to gain control of yourself and your life. Along with some inspirational and knowledgeable guests, Leah and Howard will give you the tools needed to help you on your journey. Tune in every Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's time to access your magic. Tune in each week to Living in the Magic of Possibilities with your host, Glenice Hughes. Our topics cover finances, personal health, business, relationships, mediumship, and so much more. If you want to access all that is possible in your life, listen to Glenice and her expert guests who've turned the impossible into the possible. Living in the Magic of Possibilities is heard live every Thursday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Tune in to the Self Improvement Show with your host, Dr. Irene Conlon. Got a question for Irene or her guests? Call into our live show at 1 888 346 9141. That's 1 888 346 9141. Connect with Irene via email. Our address is the Self Improvement Blog at gmail.com. Now, let's get back to the Self Improvement Show. Here again is Dr. Irene Conlon. Welcome back to the Self-Improvement Show. This is Irene Conlon. My guest today is Jeffrey Rubin, uh, a psychiatrist in New York who practices meditative psychiatry. We've been talking about thriving and flourishing. And I said that when we came back from break, we're going to talk about intimacy. Jeffrey, you talk about healthy intimacy in the book. What do you mean by healthy intimacy? Healthy intimacy is a close relationship based on communication, sometimes vulnerability, respect, and a friendship. It's a we that respects both eyes. It's a relationship where we can bring in more and more of who we really are, and it's met, it's seen, it's respected. In Aristotle's Ethics, he talks about friendship in a really nice way. It's, it's a relationship that brings out the best in each person. We, we morally, emotionally, we feel good being with this person. One signal for people out there in the audience is a relationship in which you're, you're really who you want to be. It's a sign that there's something good about it. And a relationship where we really don't like who we are is a sign that there's a major, major problem. I once had a martial arts teacher, and he said to me that he was going to end the relationship that he was in because he didn't like who he was becoming. And so I think healthy intimacy is the opposite of that. We really like who we are, and it's it's a we that respects both eyes, as I said before. So what what does the word intimacy cover? A lot of people think that only sex is intimacy, but there's so much more to it. Can you talk about the so much more that's involved I, I will with try. I, I tried to allude to it just now when I used the word vulnerability and bringing all of us. It's a, it's a human connection. It's a human relationship in which we're bringing in all of us. We're bringing in our strengths. We're bringing in our self-doubts. We're bringing in what we dream for. Years ago, I was brought in to possibly be a consultant to this 
uh, group of uh, sort of masters of the universe. They were heads of airlines and uh, TV networks. And I listened them to them for about an hour, and what I realized, and I, and I told them this, was that they were very, very good at, pro- at solving problems, but they seemed deficient at dreaming together. They didn't dream about the kind of world they wanted. They just put out fires. So intimacy is not just about putting out fires. It's about dreaming together. It's about bringing all of who we are to a relationship with someone else, including our vulnerabilities, including our strengths, including what we yearn for, including what we struggle with, and having it met and seen and respected. It's bringing all of us to a relationship with someone else and them bringing all of them to us. And I want to definitely emphasize that there's vulnerability in that and there's a need to communicate. And one of the things I talk about in Chapter 11 of the book is sort of Hollywood images of intimacy that interfere with genuine intimacy. And one is, is a sentence like this, I looked across the room and I knew he, he or she was the one. No one slows that down enough and asks, what does that mean? I looked across the room and I knew that she was the one or he was the one. All you know is what they look like and how they move. And actually, a lot of it is what I call autistic because they just meet your image. They're tall or they move in a certain way or they look in a certain way or they have certain color hair or skin or... And it's all about what it, what it means to you. But intimacy to me is also going beyond ourselves into really caring about someone else and their welfare and how the, whether they're thriving, not just me feeling good. This is another reason why I don't like the happiness stuff. You can't have a, uh, a theory of intimacy with, all, with the happiness stuff because happiness stuff is about feeling happy. But intimacy is about dealing with real life, and sometimes you're nursing a partner who's sick, or you're taking care of someone who uh, lost a job or can't get a job. So intimacy is about bringing all of us fully raw and as we actually are. You know, the media has such an influence on us, and... The portrayal of love and intimacy is probably, to me, one of the most warped things we see uh, in the media. Is there, a, is there a way to overcome the impact this is going to have on the next generation when this is, there's media everywhere they turn? They live in media. You know, they live in Facebook and Twitter and uh, TV. So how are they going to see a real portrayal anywhere of what intimacy is? Um, I think there are at least two ways. I think you're making a very good point, and it is a warped view. I think, number one, we have to reject the childlike views of intimacy, and we have to point them out where we can. And then I think we have to present more holistic, complete, realistic adult versions of it. And I try to do that in the book by talking about this. I mean, I, I like the Hollywood movies as much as the next person. When I saw Sleepless in Seattle, uh, maybe I even saw it twice, you know, I really liked it. And then as time went on, I began to think there's something really crazy about it. And here's what's crazy. The whole movie is the build-up to the end when Tom Hanks and Megan Ryan, uh, Megan Ryan, Meg Ryan 
um, connect at the top of the Empire State Building with his son. And then they walk downstairs arm in arm, and the schmaltzy music is on, playing. And then it's snowing. And then the movie ends. And, and the terrible irony struck me at the end of the movie the second time, which is our lives in intimacy begin where that movie ends, which is all the thousands of hours of toothpaste, uh, you know, yeah. being opened and toilet bowls being up or down and life and teenagers being rebellious. And so we need more full-bodied uh, full images of intimacy in the media. One of the things that, I mean, I'm not an expert in this at all, but I think the media often drastically misreads what the people really want. I mean, every time you have a really solid movie, a movie like The Straight Story or like The Visitor, really quality movies, there's, I believe there's a market out there for that. I, I believe that the media and the media leaders are often underestimating human potential, and they're underestimating what the public wants. And I think the public is yearning for... The public yearns for many things, including escape, but the public also yearns for... More full-bodied, honest, accurate depictions of what life is really like. So I think we need to present that. And that's one of the things I'm trying to do in the book, is to present a more adult version of intimacy. But one that I think is, uh, is accessible to all of us. I don't think one's education level, one's economic level, doesn't matter. We can form healthy relationships with people, even if we're struggling financially or uh, we haven't had much education. It's not a matter of that. It's a matter of communication, caring, respect, building friendship. So I think we need to challenge these media images and we need to present alternatives. You talk about relationships that cherishes both eyes, a we that cherishes both eyes. What, you know, I love the word cherish. I think it says so much more than I, I love you even. Um, because when you cherish, it, to me, cherish is more of an action word than I love. Yes. You know, talk a little bit about what goes into cherishing and how that relates to intimacy. You know, the Gestalt therapist Fritz Perl said boredom is inattention. Boredom is inattention. And I think what he meant is if you really look at something wholeheartedly, it's usually interesting. It could be a leaf. It could be an insect. And if you doubt this, all you have to do is, is play with young children and watch how a, a worm, anything, becomes a whole universe. Um, I think Wordsworth and Blake talked about, you know, a universe and a grain of sand. It's yes. rich, it's full, it's, it's complicated. And there's a way in which we can move through the world. There's a new chapter, a chapter in the new book I'm working on, The Runaway World, uh, A Source of Hope in a Runaway World, that I call Tasting Raindrops, The Art of Savoring. And it comes out of a young relative of mine. When I was going through a rough time, I, I lost both my folks um, this year. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. My, thank you. On Halloween, my, my dad died. I buried my dad. And then 11 days later, a few days after Trump was elected, my, my mom died. And it was right around that time, and it was a gray November, um, cold, rainy New York day. And this relative was walking, she's five, and she was walking ahead of me, and she tilted her head back, and she stuck her tongue out, and she said, Jeffrey, Jeffrey, I'm tasting raindrops. 
And my whole mood melted away, my feeling sorry for myself and my sadness and what mm-hmm. I was going through melted away because I realized the universe is filled with beauty and it's, it's available moment to moment to moment. And so cherishing is that same kind of spirit of relishing life, of asking what we can do in a particular moment, what, what can we learn, what can we do. Uh, the Buddhist teacher Trungpa Rinpoche used to talk about workability. How is this moment workable? What can we extract from this? What, what beauty is there that we're, we're not really appreciating? And it's possible to have that. You could be in a hospital room and look out the window and appreciate that. And this is another reason why I don't like the happiness stuff, and I, I, I talk about flourishing, because you can flourish when things are not going well. You're flourishing when you jump in the water to save a neighbor's uh, pet, a neighbor's dog. You're flourishing, but you don't feel too good. You feel cold and wet. and So flourishing is about how we live, and part of, a key part of how we live is savoring or cherishing what we can cherish that's right in front of us. And often it's not... Proust talks about the real voyage of discovery is not traveling to new lands, but seeing with new eyes. And so when we see with new eyes, it's possible to savor more and more. Savoring is one of my favorite words, by the way. For, for everything, for food, for a day, you can savor this. Ama- we have the most amazing day going on now, and I intend to go savor it when, when we finish. It, it's such a great word. It, it just makes so much warmth come into any experience. One of the things that you talk about in the book that I really loved is cultivating the garden of love. You know, can you briefly go into what it means to cultivate a garden of love? Yes, think of a garden. See, this is something we haven't talked about yet, very, very important to mention. I think we have a deep misunderstanding of love in the culture, and it's what I call hedonic, meaning it relates to feelings. Again, why I don't like this happiness stuff, I feel good, I don't feel good. I don't feel good, I'm going to leave you. I, you know, I feel good, I'm going to be with you. It's very fickle. It's about how I feel now. And love, is, love to me is not just about feeling, it's also about an action. I think Eric Fromm talked about this you know, decades ago in The Art of Loving. It, it's loving, it's an action. And part of the action, as I said before, is bringing out the best in the other person, is seeing the other person, savoring them and relishing them, and then bringing out the best in them. And so to me, love is an environment that two people create. It's not just a feeling that I have. When I say it's an environment that two people create, it's a world in which there's safety, there's communication, there's seeing the best in the other person, there's wanting the best for them, there's honoring vulnerability, there's looking at one's mistakes, there's healing ruptures, all of this good stuff and challenging stuff is all part of love. So it's an environment. So once I realize love is an environment that two people create or erode, then the metaphor of garden emerged in my consciousness, and I realized it's like a garden that has to be cultivated. You don't just have a... You don't just have a... I'm sorry? We're right up to the end of the show, so I'm going to ask you to make what you say now uh, the the message that you want to leave, the thought you want to leave with our audience today, and I know you can do that in relation to this garden. So if we take care of ourselves 
and then we open to other people, we can create an environment with them, a world like a garden in which we pull the weeds, in which we water it, in which we compost it, and which we create something that is both um, wonderful for us and inspiring for other people. And that, that to me is a loving relationship, and that then creates a more loving world. I encourage everyone who's listening to get the book, The Art of Flourishing, A Guide to Mindfulness, Self-Care, and Love in a Chaotic World by Dr. Jeffrey Rubin. You can hear all about the cultivating your garden of love and so many wonderful things about living life to the fullest and savoring every moment. Jeffrey, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank it's you so much wonderful. for having me. Just one quick correction. Um, a, a psychotherapist, not a psychiatrist. Ah, so I knew that. <laughs> and, and I know better. So, <laughs> and, Thank and you so much for having book. me. It was wonderful. I, I loved every minute of it. We'll have you back again. And so this that. is Irene Conlon saying thank you so much for being with us today. Come back next week for more of the Self-Improvement Show. Thank you again for joining Dr. Irene Conlon for the Self-Improvement Show. Please listen again next Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Remember that improvement out there starts in here. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.